Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat. Well, I mean... Give me every chat about. I mean, come on, with the you know, with a title like the Shark Arm Murder, you know you're going to get your money's worth this week. I mean, you know you're going to get some good stuff this time around. Hey, last week we talked about how half hours history, you know, needs to get back to its roots with ridiculous stories filled with you know blood and guts and horrible murder and all, you know stuff that only gets worse from here. And I should bloody well think that this one fits the bill. I'll, I'll tell you that much because the Shark Arm Murder, right? It is. Uh, an unbelievable piece of Australian history. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's Australian. I mean, you didn't you, you didn't think this happened anywhere else, did you? You didn't think this happened somewhere other than Australia. Of course it's Australian. I mean, it involves, you already may have guessed, a, a murder, an arm and a shark. So, of course, it's going to be an Australian story here. On, uh, on Anzac Day in 1935, a huge captive tiger shark spewed up a human arm. And, and this set off a murder investigation that led to all sorts of ridiculous things, blackmail upon blackmail, a high-speed boat chase, a failed suicide attempt, and a highly suspicious and uh, very mysterious assassination. Uh, and even today, we still don't even have, we don't have all the facts about the shark arm case and, uh, you know, all the, you know, with all the concerned parties long dead, including the poor old shark itself, we may never have all the facts, but nonetheless... It's an absurd and also absolutely bloody hilarious tale. I can tell you that much. So, uh, look, let's not waste any more time. Let's uh, let's get straight into it. Strap yourselves in here because we are off to the races, mate. We're going all the way back, all the way back to 1935, as I said. 1935 to Sydney, uh, an Australian city largely considered to be uh, inferior to Melbourne in more or less every way that matters. That's the broad consensus on that one there. I mean, come on, mate. What are, you, what, are you, what are you even doing, Sydney? A bloody coat hanger across the harbour with a dish rack next to it. You know, they think they're the ducks nuts because of this. I mean, get your hand off it, Sydney. What are you doing? Anyway, our story, oddly enough, it begins with the uh, the demolition of the Coogee Pier, uh, which used to be a great big tourist attraction uh, that couldn't hack it in the Sydney surf, and so it was torn down before it actually fell down. Um, well, you know, shoddy Sydney builders, if you ask me, but that's neither here nor there. I mean, you know, we, we don't need to get into this, but, you know, the, the, the St Kilda Pier in Melbourne is still standing today, built in the 1850s. We don't muck around still there today. The bloody Coogee Pier didn't even didn't last past the 30s. So, you know, don't muck around in Melbourne, do we, mate? I mean, even the bloody Henley Beach jetty in Adelaide is still standing. And, mate, if you're being beaten by Adelaide at anything at all, what are you even doing? Bloody Sydney siders, mate. Anyway, sorry. So, yeah, listen. Coogee Pier comes down, no good, and um, local businesses, right, local business owners, they're having a terrible time as a, as a result because hardly any tourists and visitors are left. They're not coming and spending their money. And one bloke, his name is Bert Hobson, and he's in charge of the Coogee Aquarium and Swimming Baths. Uh, he's having a bloody terrible time. No money coming in. Uh, no one coming in, you know, look at, a, look at all the fish and have a swim. What's he going to do? So he gets a lucky break because on the 17th of April, 1935, a great big tiger shark gets caught off the coast of Coogee. Now, some sources said it was actually Hobson himself who caught it, but I don't know if that was the case. I wasn't able to confirm that. And it doesn't matter because whoever caught it, Hobson ended up with it, right? He's bloody stoked. Can't believe his luck because he's going to put this shark on display at the aquarium and, and swimming bars. Obviously, you know, hope he puts it in the right pool, hey? Uh, uh, and this shark, right, it is four metres long. It weighs about a ton. It's an absolute monster. And Hobson, he's dead, he's dead set sure that everyone's going to want to come 
and have a squeeze at it, right? And he is ultimately correct too, because as the news spreads of this enormous, gigantic shark, people start to uh, to flock down to Kuji. They pay their admission fee and they take a gander at it as it swims around in the aquarium. Now, on the 25th of April, which all the Aussies and the Kiwis listening will know, of course, is Anzac Day, national holiday, you beauty. Uh, there's a great big crowd in at the aquarium, uh, of course, all in to see uh, this great big shark. Um, now, it's swimming around, uh, but it doesn't seem to be having a great time, to be honest. Before this, it had been, you know, active zipping about, uh, but now it's slowed down and it looks like it's a bit crook or something. And then, at half past four in the afternoon, the shark starts convulsing, bloody spasming about. What's this? What's gone wrong here? What's going on with this shark, mate? And it ends up going the big vom, and you'll never guess what, spew- what it spews up. Well, I mean, you... You said nah, didn't you? you, you actually, maybe you probably had you had, probably actually had a very good guess, a very very good guess at uh, at, at what was uh, what was going to come out of the shark's gob there. But yes, it, it it spewed up an arm. Anyway, as I say, months up this human arm, which uh, as it turns out, it hadn't even eaten. It wasn't the one who had eaten it. It had eaten a smaller shark, which had been the one that had actually eaten the arm. So the you know the, the observation of Qui Gon Jinn echoing through the centuries here. There's always a bigger fish. And uh, yes, the smaller shark had eaten the arm and then this big tiger shark had eaten the smaller shark and the arm was still, you know, half digested in, in its belly. Now, obviously, there's pandemonium at the, uh, at the aquarium. The cops are called in to deal with this situation and they fish the arm out of the water and they have a proper look at it. Now, it turns out it's got a great big bloody tattoo on it, about 20 centimetres in length of two blokes boxing. So the cops go, oh, this is, you know, this is a good lead. I reckon we've got a decent chance here of finding out who this arm belongs to. But here's where they really start to get interested in what happened, because after further investigation, they realise that the arm wasn't bitten off by the shark, right? The arm has quite clearly been lopped off with... A, a bladed edge with a sharp blade. It hasn't been ripped or torn by shark's teeth. It's been it's been cut off. So now, rather than a shark attack, given that we have you know no substantial evidence that sharks are able to wield swords just yet, right? Rather than it being a shark attack, which is obviously a much rarer occurrence than most people think, we're actually looking at, of course, horrible murder with the shark being instead an unwitting accomplice in destroying the evidence. So, now the cops have got a task on their hand. They have to track down whoever this arms belong whoever this arm belongs to, right? And they have to find out exactly what happened to have it end up in the, you know, the belly of a shark inside the belly of a shark like this. Now, they know that it must have happened recently because the, the arm hasn't been, you know, fully properly digested. And so it couldn't have been sitting in the stomach for, you know, months or anything because, as I say, it wasn't, you know, it, it, the, the, the uh, shark's stomach is very acidic and, and it's not like this thing would have lasted in there for, for too long. So they know it's, they know it's happened re- relatively recently at least. So uh, they begin their hunt. And again, using this tattoo as a starting point, very, very big help because it means they've got a solid lead rather than just, you know, I don't know, putting a picture of an arm in the paper and saying, does this look familiar to anyone? Because, I mean, yeah, yeah, it does, mate. It, it's an arm. I've got, I mean, it's not mine. I've got, I've got two, but I'll, I'll keep an eye out, I guess. No, so no, they use, they use the, uh, the tattoo as a, as a starting point here. And the newspapers, they publish their reports about the incident. And uh, one bloke, right, he gets his newspaper in the morning. He opens it up, sees the picture of the arm and the tattoo on the arm, and he goes, bloody hell. 
that's me brother James. No doubt about it. This bloke, right, his name is Edwin Smith. He gets in touch with the coppers and he says, listen here, you blokes, I'll tell you what, I reckon that arm, that belongs to my brother James, right? My brother, he had that tattoo, so I reckon it might be him, hey? And the cops go, mate, that's brilliant. Tell you what, if you've got anything with his fingerprints on, right, we can compare them to the arm. So the cops, they take fingerprints from the arm, well, not from the arm, obviously from the hand that's attached to the arm. They're not just like covering a dead arm in ink and like smooshing it on the paper or anything. And uh, sure enough, right, they get these fingerprints. They test them against some fingerprints that they've taken from stuff that they know, they, you know, that, that they know James had touched stuff that belonged to him, whatever else. And they confirm that the arm does indeed belong to this bloke, James Smith. And that is further corroborated when James's wife, Gladys, also confirms that she recognises the tattoo. Now, James Smith, right, Jimmy, as he was also known, he was a bit of a character. He'd, uh, he'd been born in England and he'd moved to Australia and he'd worked as a boxer and a builder and a bookmaker and a few other things here and there. He also had a couple of criminal convictions, small-time stuff, gambling offences, that sort of thing, nothing too serious, but he still had definitely been involved with a few bad eggs over the years. That much was certainly clear. But now, Smith, he's nowhere to be seen. He hasn't been, hasn't been seen or heard from for days, days and days. So the cops, they now try to track his last known movements. Now that they know that, you know, they've got something, they want to return it, right? Obviously very generous indeed. So they try to uh, they try to track this bloke down and figure out, uh, you know, what, what his last known movements were. And this leads them to the very last time that he had been spotted. Uh, this is when he had gone out and gotten the source with a mate of his, a fellow named Patrick Brady, in Cronulla, which is a suburb of Sydney. Now, Brady is also quite the character. He's also a known criminal, an expert forger, as it turns out, and uh, someone with quite the old rap sheet for himself as well. Anyway, he and Smith, they're out, uh, you know, they're sinking back the frothies on the 7th of April, playing cards at the Cecil Hotel. And, uh, and when they're finished, they head off to a little place that Brady had rented out not too far from the pub. And here, right, now we move, we move from, you know, what is solidly known into the world of, of speculation and guesswork here because this is very much a guess, but it is the best guess that we have. And it's here, right, in this, uh, in this rented little cottage that Patrick Brady may indeed have murdered James Smith and then chopped him up into little pieces, chopped up the body into small pieces. And after performing this grim deed, you'll be interested to learn what Brady did next, right? Because after he, well, again, again, allegedly, we haven't ever, this has never actually been conclusively proven, but after Brady uh, supposedly or allegedly uh, uh, chopped up um, uh, Smith like this, right, he then hopped in a taxi and was driven to McMahon's Point in North Shore, ex- extremely bloody posh part of, the, of, of Sydney, bloody bloody da, mate. Although, in fairness, it actually used to be pretty working class back in the day. So, you know, anyway, um, Brady, right, he gets dropped off at another bloke's place uh, by this taxi and he goes inside there to meet with the third person involved in our little murder mystery here, a fellow by the name of Reginald Holmes, right? Now, Holmes, he was a, a seemingly respectable businessman. He was a boat builder, reasonably wealthy, does it right for himself. Although, of course, there is a more sinister side to it because Holmes was, in fact, a, uh, a figure, right, in the Sydney underworld, filled as it is with its razor gangs and all the rest of it. We heard about them in episode 100. And he's a nasty piece of work, as it turns out, because he's big into drug dealing and insurance fraud. He uses the speedboats that his company builds to smuggle contraband into Sydney. Now, incoming ships, they would drop the contraband, you know, cocaine, cigarettes, all sorts of stuff. They'd drop it off the side of the ship as they came into harbour. 
And then Holmes would send out his speedboats to go and pick up this stuff that they'd dumped in, uh, overboard, right? And then make, make uh, deliveries of, you know, the cocaine, whatever else, all over the city. And here's where it all starts to come together, because guess who drove some of the speedboats out on these special deliveries? That's right, you've done it again. It is James Smith. He was well and truly in with this Holmes bloke, as was, of course, Brady as well. Quite the trio. The three of them as a forger, he had helped Holmes with his insurance fraud and other scams and cons that they'd run. For example, Holmes, Smith and Brady, the three of them, they worked together to forge checks uh, that looked like they were from Holmes' legitimate clients, right? So uh, Holmes would obviously, as, as part of his boat building business, he would get checks from, from legitimate clients. Um, and then uh, Brady would forge the signatures, the details on, on some of these checks uh, for, you know, these fake checks would be out, be made out for very small amounts of money. The, the, sort, of amount, you know, the sort of amount that you might overlook um, if, if you didn't, if you weren't paying too, too close attention to your bank account. Um, and then, right, uh, Smith would, would cash them in using his address, right, cash them in on the slide. So the three blokes, right, clearly thick as thieves in a very literal sense here. But how... Did we even discover this connection between them? Well, as the police tried to track Smith down, right, they learned of his last movements and the night on the source at the uh, the Cecil Hotel with Brady, their investigation turned up none other than, not Brady and not Holmes, but the cab driver who had taken Brady to Holmes' place after he may indeed have, have, you know, committed this murder. And check this out. The driver not only identified Brady as his passenger, but also told the police that Brady had seemed very frightened, very jumpy in the cab, and also had something hidden under his coat and and he had refused to take his hand out of his pocket for the entire journey. Very suspicious indeed, right? So now the cops have got enough to go on to go and pick up Brady. And they question him about the whole affair. And Brady says, oh, yeah, mate, I was with Smith that night, but I had nothing to do with his arm, his bloody arm coming off. What do you think this is? Instead, Brady points the finger at Holmes and says, mate, listen, he's the one behind it all. He's the one you want. You go and have a chat to him because these two I've heard have had a bit of a falling out recently. And maybe that's the sort of thing, you know, that's that's the thread of the investigation that you want to pick up. And the cops go, well, fair enough. Interesting, if they've just had a falling out, maybe he's got something to do with the murder here. So they go and they have a chat with Holmes. But he denies everything until he's blue in the face. Holmes says, right, that he'd never even met Smith. No matter, no idea what you're talking about, mate. Absolutely no idea what you're going on about here. I don't even know the bloke. That's what Holmes is saying. So now the cops have hit a dead end. Everything they've got is circumstantial. There's nothing concrete to pin on either Brady or on Holmes here, right? I mean, of course, it's all very bloody suspicious. Suspicious is all hell, of course. But still, they just don't have the proof that they need to do anything with these two blokes, with Brady or Holmes. And so they have hit a great big brick wall here. But here's where things get really... If they weren't already interesting enough, here's where things get really interesting. Bloody hell, mate. Here we go. Because listen to this. Within a few days of the cops interviewing him, Holmes, he gets up, he takes a bottle of brandy and a pistol, and he gets into one of his speedboats, and he zooms out across the water at top speed. And there, out on his boat, he, he, he sucks back the brandy, he gets pissed as a chook, right? And then he picks up the pistol, he puts it to his head, and he pulls the trigger, and somehow managed to... Miss. 
I mean, well, I mean, that's not quite true. It's not, he, didn't, he didn't really miss, right? But the bullet, amazingly, it deflected off of his skull. And instead of, you know, instead of blowing his brains out, he fell off the side of the boat and into the water unconscious. And even more unbelievably, this didn't kill him either. He didn't drown. He came to, he got back aboard the boat, and he fangs it into the harbour at a million miles an hour, right? The ferries that are taking people across Sydney Harbour... They have to stop in their tracks because of this bloke. He's hooning around like a madman. And, of course, it's not, it's not long before the cops, they get in their, in their boats, the water police, they head out and they give chase as well. And it takes four hours. It takes four hours for them to finally catch up with, uh, with Holmes, right? He's, absolutely, he's, off, he's, he's off his trolley at this stage. Um, but once they finally do, once they finally you know, whiz round, around, around, he eventually goes out in the open water, goes out to Sydney Heads, and uh, eventually the water police, they catch, they catch up to him. And he comes in quietly. And after his arrest, right, Holmes, he starts to sing like a canary. He points the finger right back at Brady. And he says, he tells the cops, he says, listen, mate, here's what happened that night when he come to my place in the taxi. According to Holmes, Brady had turned up that night with the dismembered arm in tow. You remember the taxi driver saying that he had something hidden under his coat and he always had his arm in his pocket, right? It's because he had a bloody third arm hiding out the back under his jacket by the sound of things, right? Anyway, he turns up with this dismembered arm and Brady says to Holmes, listen, mate, I've just, I've just murdered Smith. I've just done him in, right? I've just done him Jimmy Smith. And, I, and you're bloody next. I'll tell you that much. You're next, Holmes, mate, if you don't give me 500 pounds quick smart. So Brady, he says he'd killed Smith chopped him up into little bits, put all the bits uh, except the arm into a trunk and then piffed the trunk into Gunnamatta Bay, the old Sydney send-off as it was known, right? And he'd kept the left arm to use as a threat against Holmes. Obviously, there'd be no mistaking who the arm belonged to with that tattoo. He used it as a threat against, he was going to use it as a threat against Holmes. And it turned out that this extortion attempt, at least according to Holmes, was ultimately very successful indeed. Because not wanting to be chopped up into little pieces himself, Holmes paid Brady the £500. And then after Brady had nicked off, uh, Holmes took the arm that had been left behind his bloody lounge room, you know, as you do, and he chucked it into the sea at Maraubra. And the only reason that Holmes was there telling the cops this entire story, right, is because a shark had then come along and eaten that arm and then itself had been eaten by a bigger shark, right, which was then caught and put on display before spewing up the arm again in, a, you know, in, a, in, a, in an aquarium and swimming baths. I mean, what are the bloody chances, mate? Hey. Anyway, Holmes, right? He agrees to testify against Brady. There's going to be a coronial inquest, not not a trial or anything else like that, but a coronial inquest into the death of uh, of this bloke James Smith. And uh, Holmes agrees. He agrees to uh, to you know go states evidence, and he says, "All right, I'll uh, I'll, I'll dob Brady, and I'll and I'll say you know I'll I'll give evidence as to what this bloke did coming to my house, threatening me with the arm, all, all that sort of stuff." Right? Uh, no worries at all. And this means now that the cops they've got enough to go on. Uh, to, to get after Brady properly. Now, they've, they've got a reasonable amount of evidence. They've got a witness statement, whatever else. Obviously, they don't have a confession or anything, but they've got a, a witness statement that, uh, that uh, gives, them, gives the case a lot more weight, and they think, right, we're going to be able to do Brady here. However, we're not finished here. Not by a long shot, mate. Oh, no, 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 no. Because Holmes, right, he'd agreed to testify, of course. But get this, he never made it to the stand. He never even made it to the inquest, mate. On the morning, there's a big twist coming here. You never, you never, you never see this coming in a million years. Unbelievable. Check this one out, right? Because on the morning 
of the 12th of June, right, when Holmes was supposed to go and give evidence against Brady at the colon- at the at the coronial inquest, you'll never guess what happened. Well, actually, no, you probably <laughs> you probably will guess what happened. Well, I mean, you probably will. It's pretty it's pretty bloody bloody obvious. Holmes was found dead. He was found dead in his car, three bullets in his chest, right under the Harbour Bridge. Now, apparently, the death had been uh, rather poorly staged to look like a suicide, but uh, you know. Getting three bullets in your own chest would be a real challenge, I reckon, especially considering the bloke had missed his own head the first time he tried. Uh, but this was obviously it was obviously the very, it was obviously the work of an assassin. The forensic the cops the, the the forensic department they turn up and they very quickly establish this was not a suicide. It was it was poorly staged to look like one. But obviously this bloke he's been murdered. He's been you know a hitman a hitman's come and done this. But nonetheless, right. The coronial inquest is is uh, is going to go go forward. Uh, going to go forward. It's going to go forward that very day, and as a result, suspicion naturally falls on Brady, given that Holmes was about to testify against him at this at this inquest that was going to take place that very day. Right? Uh, Brady starts to uh, have a swirling cloud of suspicion over his head after this this star this key witness all of a sudden you know is uh, is filled full of lead like that. The um, the inquest ultimately results in Brady getting off the hook completely, right? Not only did Brady not have to face Holmes' testimony, his lawyer also argued that there shouldn't even be the question of murder in the first place. Check this out, right? The only solid piece of evidence for the murder is the arm. And the arm being, I mean, a severed arm doesn't necessarily imply that anyone had died. So this sneaky, slippery lawyer, he stands up and he says, well, listen, mate, it is possible to live without an arm, right? So I put it to you that this does not constitute a body, this does not constitute a death, and therefore there should be no suspicion of murder because that doesn't necessarily follow that when you when you sever an arm, right, that the, 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 the bloke who's just lost it is going to die. I mean, for all they know, Smith might still even be alive, right? Cutting about who knows where with only one arm. And as a result of this, as a result of the lack of evidence and as a result of the fact that, again, the, the, fa- the fact that a death just couldn't actually be proven here, Brady was never charged with murder. There was just never enough evidence for him to be convicted. And after all, you know, the lawyer, I mean... The lawyer did have a point about the whole not needing an arm thing. I mean, who knows? Maybe Smith is alive to this very day at the age of 130. Pro- probably not, though, you'd reckon. Probably not. Now, I'm very sorry to do this to you, revered listener, because, look, I can't bloody stand it when a magician, you know, won't reveal how they do their tricks. But I'm afraid to say that that is more or less the end of the story. It is a story that is veiled in mystery to this very day. Until his death in 1965, right, Brady maintained that he he had absolutely nothing to do with the death of Smith or Holmes. And who knows? Maybe that's true. While the circumstances around Holmes' death imply that, you know, his his impending testimony may have had something to do with it, we don't actually know for sure that that's what it was. I mean, Sydney at this stage in its history was overrun with criminal criminal gangs, you know, razor gangs. You've heard about them before at this point. Um, so it's fair to assume that Holmes would have had plenty of enemies outside of this whole affair, you know, as a, as a drug runner, as a drug smuggler. It's, not as, it's not, not as though Brady was the only person who potentially could have wanted him dead. 
Some historians have even put forward the idea that Holmes himself hired a hitman as a convoluted way to commit suicide. Remember, he'd bloody botched it the first time. He'd been pretty bad at it when he tried previously. It sounds a bit ridiculous. But historian Alex Castles actually suggested that Holmes paid an assassin to kill him, right? Uh, so as to avoid public scandal, public disgrace at being involved in all of this. Who knows? And look, still, it's it's fair, you know, regardless of all these these theories, whatever it does, it is fair to assume that his death had something to do with the inquest and... Uh, you know, his, his intention to testify against Brady, that one isn't too hard to puzzle out. But what is a little harder to puzzle out, however, is probably the question that you're asking yourself right now. And as I say, I'm sorry to kind of end a story when, when we don't necessarily have all of the, the facts. It is a, is a great unsolved mystery. And the question I, I, I don't doubt you're asking yourself, the thing you're trying to puzzle out here is, why was Smith killed in the first place? We still don't really know to this. Not, I mean, not for certain. To this very day, we still don't have a conclusive answer as to why you know Jimmy Smith had his arm chopped off and was presumably <laughs> presumably killed after that. We actually just don't know. I mean, there are a number of uh, of plausible explanations that have been put forth. Check this out, right? So, firstly. As I mentioned before, Smith and Holmes, they had had a falling out over a failed insurance scam previous to this. And uh, the cops later found out that Smith had actually been blackmailing Holmes. This is one of the reasons for the bad blood between these two. Uh, Smith knew that if he exposed Holmes as a, you know, as a criminal, as a, as a fraudster, as a drug runner, a drug smuggler, that sort of stuff, it had cost him his business, it had cost him his, his, his professional reputation, probably also his freedom as well as the, as the, as the cops had arrested him. And so uh, Smith was actually blackmailing Holmes for a, for a considerable amount of money in order to keep him, uh, keep him quiet there, uh, keep his silence. Uh, so it could very well have been, right, that Holmes uh, had ordered the death of Smith himself, right, wanting to uh, rid himself of this blackmailer, wanting to sort of free himself from the yoke of this blackmail. And maybe after this, after Holmes had uh, had uh, ordered the, uh, the hit, maybe Brady confronted Holmes with a fresh blackmail, threatening, again, the, the very same thing. Listen, if you don't pay up, I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to reveal your criminal enterprise, reveal your involvement in this murder, all of that sort of thing. So maybe the shakedown that Brady perpetrated after that taxi uh, taxi ride was in very much the same vein as what Smith was doing in the first place. But just in case the plot wasn't thick enough, I've got one final piece of information to share with you here that really, really does turn the, the case uh, on its side here. Because listen to this one. Check out... What emerged after, you know, the inquest, after this whole affair had sort of settled down a bit. Check out what uh, came, uh, came out in the wash after all of this, right? Smith, right, Jimmy Smith, this whole time was a police informant. Unbelievable. I mean, if this had become known to his criminal associates, if he's going, he's going around bloody tattling on, on, uh, on, on this criminal here and that criminal there... If this had become known to the people he worked with, it may very well be that one of them ordered the uh, the death of Smith. I mean, you know, and and maybe it was Brady or indeed anyone else who was uh, instructed to carry it out. We don't know. I mean, there are a bunch of other gangland figures connected with Smith. There was a bloke he helped with a bank robbery, uh, you know, previous to this whole... Well, obviously, he didn't do it afterwards. <laughs> he didn't do it after he'd been half eaten by a shark. Uh, previous to this whole affair, he'd helped this bloke out with a bank robbery, uh, you know, and uh, and that bloke later on, he and some of his accomplices were, were, were arrested and perhaps on the testimony of... Uh, 
of Smith in the first place. So if that sort of stuff came out, maybe it was a, a, retrib- a, a retributive killing. Maybe it was a punitive killing here uh, because obviously he'd ratted them out. And, uh, you know, if, if that's the case, you know, uh, if, if Smith had gone around exposing other gangland figures, it's not surprising that he got chopped up and, and was half eaten by a shark there. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the shark arm murder, it represents one of Australia's great unsolved mysteries. As ridiculous and as entertaining as the whole story is, there is unfortunately just no clear answer when it comes to what actually happened, and more importantly, why it happened. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the shark arm murder. I do very much hope you're enjoying Half Hour's History getting back to its roots. I plan for some more highbrow stuff in the in the coming weeks, but in the meantime, it's blood and guts and horrible murder, and it only got worse from here for as far as the eye can see, my friends. And if you've got a story you'd like covered, but if you want a, if you want a story that gets given the Half Hour's History treatment, please do get in touch. All the normal boring housekeeping stuff coming your way right now. Halfhourshistory.net. Go there. There's a contact form you can fill out if you uh, if you want to send in. Uh, an idea or you can join the discord bit.ly slash join riley's discord getting a lot of topic suggestions that way and uh, and of course a lot of other people discussing the show talking about uh, the episodes and all that sort of stuff so please do come along and join us it's great to hang out with people there uh, if you want to support the show, all the usual ways to do it, there's the Patreon, there's the merch shop as well. Thank you to the people who put in uh, orders recently. Uh, running low on T-shirts-ish, so uh, if you're wanting one, get in quick. And uh, that is just about that. What else do I have to do? No? Is that everything? I think that's everything, right? Um, oh, tell your friends, tell your enemies, all the normal nonsense. I'm very bad at this. I'm very bad at the promotion sort of thing. I, I'm wondering, like... I don't know. I've been looking at like getting ads and stuff on the podcast. I just don't really want to do it. I'm just not very good at this whole, I don't know. So if you can help me out by uh, doing the hard work for me that I'm too lazy and inept to do myself just by spreading the good word of half Earth history, I'd very much appreciate it. You know, the marketing budget for this show, show is actual zero. And um, the I really do owe my success to all the people who are kind enough uh, to uh, to plug the show to their uh, their friends and family. I mean, you don't have to be annoying about it, but if, if you've got a mate or someone who you reckon might... Uh, might enjoy listening to, you know, bloody goose talking about history every week, then, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe give them, uh, give them the address, halfhourshistory.net. Anyway, that is that. Uh, thanks for tuning in for another episode, and I'll see you back here next week for more uh, more Half Hours History. And, uh, again, do get in touch with any, uh, any topic suggestions, any ideas you may have. Looking forward to hearing from you. But as I say, we are done. Uh, closing it out, of course, with a question posed on Reddit. This one coming to us uh, from Redditor... Legend of Piso Mojado, which I believe means Legend of the Wet Floor, I think. I think I saw that in a sign somewhere in the southwest in the United States somewhere. Anyway, the Legend of Piso Mojado wants to know, is it safe to channel surf during Shark Week? Shark Week.